0: Greetings, and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll cover the news and planets, take a look at Messier 4, and then look at the facts and fiction of Apollo 13. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, then firstly, thank you. And secondly, you may be thinking I'm a little late with this episode. Technically, you're correct. I tried to produce an episode every 10 days or so, around the 1st, 10th, and 20th of the month. Unfortunately, every time we got to about 8 or 9 days after the last episode, I'd get that sinking feeling as I remembered I hadn't written a word on the next episode yet. As a result, I've decided to make this a bi weekly podcast and will endeavour to produce an episode at the beginning and the middle of the month. That way, Instead of getting that sinking feeling every 10 days and forcing myself to write and record something, I can now delay it another 5 days and convince myself I still have plenty of time. There's another aspect to this. My freelance writing work is picking up some speed and I need to devote more time to writing my own books. Otherwise I won't be making any money this Christmas and, frankly, I can't have that. It's not that I'm a money-grabbing tight-fisted writer, intent on taking his audience for every penny they've got, but rather that I have a family to feed and a 401k to rebuild. Anyway, if you're not a regular listener, then firstly, why not? And secondly, welcome to My Corner of the Cosmos. It's a bi-weekly astronomy podcast about stars and stuff, lightly salted with a little sarcasm and maybe just a little dry-roasted too. Now that's out of the way, let's talk a little bit about Messier 4, the brightest globular cluster in the constellation of Scorpius, the Scorpion. It's best seen around 11pm in the second half of June, and even though it doesn't rise very high in northern hemisphere skies, you can still get a pretty decent squint at it. It's visible with binoculars, but to be honest, I've never seen it myself. I tried it a number of times when I lived under the semi-rural skies of Oklahoma, but it never showed up. I'm honestly not sure why, as it's bright enough and large enough to be seen with regular 10x50s. I've also tried from my current home in the suburbs of the vast border of Los Angeles, but of course I've had no luck with there either. I have, however, had some success telescopically. I was living in Oklahoma and I was using an Orion 4.5 XT dobsonian reflector. It's an excellent telescope. I'd recommend it to anyone, especially beginners. That's not a plug by the way, I actually mean it. Anyway, the cluster is visible at a low magnification of 35 times but it's small and faint and appears slightly elongated. This elongation is due partly to a fairly unique feature. It appears to have a thick bar of stars across its centre. This first becomes properly visible at about 70 times, but you'll need to double the magnification again to really appreciate it. That was the view from Oklahoma, but unfortunately the view from Los Angeles is, of course, disappointing to say the least. Incidentally, for comparison, I now have a Celestron Nextar 130 SLT go-to. At a magnification of about 27 times, the cluster is barely visible and I had to tap the telescope to see it. Things definitely improved at around 80 times, but like so many other objects, I was left with a sense of disappointment when I remembered the view from Oklahoma. In many respects, it's like seeing a friend for the first time in years and realising that they've changed and things just aren't the same anymore. So, if you live under anything remotely resembling those dark skies astronomers dream of, make the most of it. While some of the more massive planets in our solar system have giant rings and numerous big moons, Mars only has two small misshapen moons, Phobos and Deimos. Although these moons are small, their peculiar orbits hide important secrets about their past. Scientists have found that the only way to produce Deimos's unusually tilted orbit is for Mars to have had a ring billions of years ago. For a long time, scientists believed the two moons, discovered in 1877, were captured asteroids. However, since their orbits are almost in the same plane as Mars's equator, the moons must have formed at the same time as Mars. Mars's inner moon, Phobos, is losing height as its tiny gravity is interacting with the looming Martian globe. Soon, in astronomical terms, Phobos' orbit will drop too low, and Mars's gravity will pull it apart to make a ring around the planet. The scientists proposed that over billions of years, generations of Martian moons were destroyed into rings. Each time, the ring would then give rise to a new, smaller moon to repeat the cycle over again. Researchers have, for the first time, observed the full 12-day process of material spiralling into a distant neutron star, triggering an X-ray outburst thousands of times brighter than our Sun. The scientists observed an accreting neutron star as it entered an outburst phase in an international collaborative effort involving five groups of researchers seven telescopes, five on the ground, two in space, and 15 collaborators. It is the first time such an event has been observed in this detail, in multiple frequencies including high sensitivity measurements in both optical and X-ray. The physics behind this switching on process has eluded physicists for decades, partly because there are very few comprehensive observations of the phenomenon. About 3.5 million years ago, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our Milky Way galaxy unleashed an enormous burst of energy. Our primitive ancestors already a foot in the African plains, likely would have witnessed this flare as a ghostly glow high overhead in the constellation of Sagittarius. It might have persisted for a million years. Now, aeons later, astronomers are using NASA's Hubble Space Telescope's unique capabilities to uncover even more clues about this cataclysmic explosion. Looking to the far outskirts of our galaxy, they found that the black hole's floodlight reached so far into space it illuminated a vast train of gas trailing the Milky Way's two prominent satellite galaxies, the Large Magellanic Cloud, and its companion, the Small Magellanic Cloud. The black hole outburst was probably caused by a large hydrogen cloud up to 100,000 times the sun's mass falling onto the disk of material swirling near the central black hole. The resulting outburst sent cones of blistering ultraviolet radiation above and below the plane of the galaxy and deep into space. The star Kepler-160 is probably orbited by a planet less than twice the size of the Earth with a star-planet distance that could permit planetary surface temperatures conducive to life. The newly discovered exoplanet is more than just another potentially habitable world. One of the key properties making it resemble the Sun-Earth system more than any other previously known world is its Sun-like host star. Most of the Earth-like exoplanets known so far are in orbit around a faint red dwarf star, emitting their energy mostly as infrared radiation rather than as visible light. The light shed on the planet by its Sun-like host star, however, is very much like the daylight seen on Earth. Moreover, the orbital period of the planet around its Sun-like star is almost identical to an Earth year. By earthly standards, Saturn's moon Titan is a strange place. Larger than the planet Mercury, Titan is swaddled but in a thick atmosphere. It is the only moon in our solar system to have one, and covered in rivers and seas of liquid hydrocarbons like methane and ethane. Beneath these is a thick crust of water ice, and beneath that may be a liquid water ocean that could potentially harbour life. Now, decades of measurements and calculations have revealed that Titan's orbit around Saturn is expanding meaning the moon is getting farther and farther away from the planet, at a rate about a hundred times faster than expected. The research suggests that Titan was born much closer to Saturn and migrated out to its current distance of 1.2 million kilometers about 746,000 miles, over 4.5 billion years. Standard theories predict that, because of its distance from Saturn, Titan should be migrating at a sluggish rate of at at most 0.1 centimeters per year but the new results contradict this prediction. As a result, it's thought Titan is moving away from Saturn at the rate of about 10 cm per year. In comparison, our own moon is moving away from the Earth at about 3.8 cm per year. Lastly, one of the biggest and longest standing questions in the history of human thought is whether there are other intelligent life forms within our universe. Obtaining good estimates of the number of possible extraterrestrial civilizations has, however, been very challenging. A recent study has taken a new approach to this problem. Using the assumption that intelligent life forms on other planets in a similar way as it does on Earth, researchers have obtained an estimate for the number of intelligent, communicating civilizations within our own galaxy, an estimate that there could be over 30 communicating civilizations within the Milky Way. This is an enormous advance over previous estimates which spanned from zero to billions. Mercury is still clinging to the west-northwestern horizon after sunset, but you're running out of time and it won't be easy to spot. If you're lucky, you can try looking about 15 minutes after sunset, but you'll need a clear, unobstructed view as it won't be any more than about 10 degrees above the horizon. You will also need binoculars, as it won't be very bright. Don't wait too long, as it will be gone before the 20th. After Mercury vanishes, you won't easily see any other planets in the evening sky until nearly midnight. By that time, both Jupiter and Saturn will be rising over the southeastern horizon, but won't be at their best until around 3am. Jupiter reaches opposition next month, on the 14th, with Saturn following just 6 days later. At magnitude minus 2.7 Jupiter is almost at its brightest and will brighten by just 0.1 magnitudes over the next month. Telescopically it now appears an impressive 46 arc seconds in diameter and will only increase by 2 arc seconds by the time of opposition. Saturn is in a similar position but of course it's not as bright as its largest sibling. It's now magnitude 0.3 and will brighten to 0.1 over the next month. However its apparent diameter 18 arc seconds will remain about the same. Next over the horizon is Neptune at around 1am which gives you a good couple of hours to get some observations in. Mars is very close behind at about 1.15am. The red planet is also brightening and is currently magnitude minus 0.4. It will be at its best in October but with an apparent diameter of 11 arc seconds it's worth beginning your observations now. Uranus rises at around 3am while Venus surfaces about an hour and a half before the sun. Venus, our nearest neighbour, should be easily seen over the eastern horizon in the pre-dawn twilight. The waning crescent moon appears some way to its right on the 18th and within the same binocular field of view the following morning. Lastly, speaking of the moon, it turns new on the 21st and reaches first quarter on the 28th. If you were to ask most space nuts which astronaut they admire the most, they'd probably give you a range of answers. Some, of course, would say Neil Armstrong, others might say Buzz Aldrin, others still, including myself, might say Jim Lovell. Those of you who aren't space nuts probably don't know who he is, but if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, then you've at least heard of him at some point in your life. Jim Lovell was the commander of the Apollo 13 spaceflight, the one that nearly ended in disaster. He was played by Tom Hanks in the film. And if you still don't know who I'm talking about, then I would probably advise you to stop listening now. Anyway, the movie Apollo 13 was released in the United States on June 30th 1995, 25 years ago. Incidentally, the actual mission happened 50 years ago, in April 1970. The movie didn't make it to the United Kingdom until September 22nd that year, and I remember going to see it with my girlfriend at the time. Of course, we chose to see it on Friday, October 13th. After all, why not? It seemed appropriate. I can remember sitting in the cinema and being very impressed by the accuracy of what I was seeing. I even remember saying to my then-girlfriend that the only inaccuracy I noted was near the end, when it took longer than expected for ground control to hear from the crew as the capsule re-entered the atmosphere. I thought the filmmakers had dramatized that a little, and presented it as a longer period of time than it really was. As it turns out, I was wrong, it really did take longer to re-establish communications with the capsule, because the capsule itself was taking longer to re-enter the atmosphere. Previous moon landings had brought back a bunch of moon rocks, which of course added weight to the vehicle. Since Apollo 13 didn't have any rock samples on board, having never actually landed on the moon, the spacecraft was lighter and didn't drop through the atmosphere as quickly. As such, it's one of the most accurate depictions of spaceflight you'll ever see, but there were a few other things that have either been fictionalized or were incorrectly assumed to be fictionalized in the movie. By the way, I am, of course, a nerd. I listen to the commentaries on movies and Apollo 13 has two excellent commentaries, one by director Ron Howard and the other by Jim Lovell and his wife Marilyn. A lot of what I'm about to tell you comes from those commentaries, and the rest is from the IMDb. Firstly, let's start with the famous quote, Houston, we have a problem. No one actually said this. When the explosion first occurred, Jack Swagger, the command module pilot said, okay Houston, we've had a problem here. When ground control didn't quite hear what he'd said and asked the crew to repeat it, commander Jim Lovell replied, ah Houston, we've had a problem. Likewise, Gene Kranz, played by Ed Harris, a dead ringer in the movie, never said, failure is not an option. That was something written for the movie, which then took on a life of its own. In fact, Kranz liked the phrase so much he used it as the title for his autobiography. Incidentally, his book is excellent, definitely one of the best I've ever read about Apollo and the space race in general. Some thought the scene where Marilyn Lovell dropped her wedding ring in the shower was hokey. They thought it was total fiction, but it wasn't. It actually happened, although she was lucky enough to find it again. Apollo 13's launch was recreated using CGI, although there were some, Buzz Aldrin for example, who thought it was actual footage. I can remember seeing this in the cinema, and I can certainly understand the confusion over a long distance shot from the spectator stance. But there's also footage where the camera appears to move down the side of the rocket as it launches. Clearly, to me anyway, this is CGI. It would have been impossible to capture that footage at the time. However, my favourite piece of Apollo 13 trivia comes from the INDB. Apparently Ron Howard has said that, After a test screening, one audience member expressed total disdain. They didn't like the typical Hollywood ending because they thought the astronauts would never have survived. Duh. In truth, the only part of the film that was pure fiction was the argument between Hayes and Spaggart on the way home. That never happened. Lovell has said there was no tension between the three astronauts and that everyone worked together to get the job done. The argument was added to the film purely for dramatic purposes. Jim Lovell himself makes a cameo at the end of the movie, as the astronauts step out of the helicopter and onto the aircraft carrier, they're met by the ship's captain. That's Jim Lovell. Director Ron Howard wanted him to play the part of an admiral, but Lovell said he retired as captain and insisted he be represented that way. And that's probably one of the reasons why I like the guy. Obviously, I don't know him, but I admire him. I admire him because he's one of the few Apollo astronauts who remained married to the woman who saw him through those years. He's the only astronaut to have flown to the moon twice and yet never landed on it. The crew of Apollo 13, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes and Jack Swigert, are the three people who have travelled furthest from the Earth. But more than this, when you see and hear him speak, you just get the feeling that he's just an all-round decent and honourable guy. No wonder, then, that they asked Tom Hanks to play him. Here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. What's the only feature on the moon to be named by an astronaut? Is it A, McAuliffe, a crater on the far side of the moon, B, Mare Crisium, the sea crisis, C, Hadley Rille, or D, Mount Marilyn? As always, I'll give you the answer in a few moments. The answer to the trivia question is D, Mount Marilyn. Jim Lovell informally named the mountain after his wife joined his Apollo 8 mission and the name has since stuck. It was officially adopted by the International Astronomical Union in 2017. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple, and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash pod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Stuff Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you.